I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In peace, there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger. Comfort Man. Welcome to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters, a podcast where we watch and then talk about a production of every single play written by William Theodore Shakespeare, who needs no introduction. But we do, so I'm Tammy Sarah Lindy. And I'm Luke O'Hagan. This week on Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters, Richard II, directed by Gregory Doran for the Royal Shakespeare Company in 2013, filmed live at the Royal Shakespeare Theatre in Stratford-upon-Avon and written in 1595 by William Shakespeare. What is a king? A miserable little pile of secrets. The tale of Richard II is that rarest of beasts, a piece of theatre in a very monarchist era, that contains, and even to some extent glorifies, a coup dethroning the king. This is a play with two kings of England in it. Henry IV, who we'll have two plays about in the near future, and Richard II, the least popular and least discussed of the royal Richards. He is a king mostly known for an excellent play detailing his demise, written by the son of a glover from Warwickshire. This little scripted bit of the podcast has existed for a few reasons over the course of our podcast thus far. It's been a place to make grand and sweeping statements about the place of Shakespeare in our modern lives. It's been a place to make thinly veiled political jokes. But actually, the initial intent for this paragraph was to explain why we chose the version of the play that we did. We've picked plays for lots of varied reasons, and some for no reason at all. But this one is very simple. Tammy's a big Doctor Who fan, And putting David Tennant in a show is a surefire way to get her excited to watch it. So, here we are. And now, for the sake of brevity, a synopsis of Richard II in one tweet. My name is Richard, second of that name. The way my nobles plot is very lame. First, I'll exile these two across the sea. No bad can come of this. I'm the king. Trust me. Lights up, and I am immediately taken by the stage and thematic design of this production. What did you think? Yeah, it's there's a sometimes when we watch uh, shows, you see um, you any show of any kind, not just the Shakespeare we're watching for this podcast, but when you go and see shows, there are shows you see where you know you see oh wow these guys have done really well with their resources at hand or these guys have done a really interesting job yes whereas this uh, RSC version of Richard II is what i would call high quality theater oh absolutely i mean it clearly has a budget yes but that budget has been so well utilized like nothing's been wasted in this and they're able to do some stuff because of the space they're in that is clearly expensive and you know they have all this amazing stagecraft and they have what we'll talk about which is a a top-notch cast yeah and they've made all these nuanced choices with regards to script and direction yeah and uh you know i like it yeah wrap it up four and a half spears (laughs) well i mean let's let's not jump the gun there are some things i have to say about this play yes (laughs) i mean like when we talk about, you know, when, like we often talk about the production and, you know, how well it was staged or yeah. those kinds of things. And we, we want to always talk about it in the context of the the story itself, like what Shakespeare intended for it and what the outcome of the script is meant to be. And I just feel that in this particular 
um, production and this adaptation of this this story, the the creative team that has put this together in conjunction with the cast, but the creative team, the production team has just gone to such levels of detail with the scenography. So your set, your lighting, your, your sound design, your costume design, um, you know, like it, we see a traditional set usage of the Hellmouth, yeah. um, and they've brought that that traditional Hellmouth that is um, familiar from the Shakespeare days of yore. Yeah, um, specifically the Globe, and yeah, yeah, like that's where it was not invented, but we see a lot of um, historical references to, references to it. But they've actually tried to use that in in a way that, um, you know, they have men coming out of it after they've been tortured. So this idea that they're coming out of the pits of hell. So it's still being used in a very honourable nod to its traditional use, but it works within the context of the play. They've brought those historical references forward and made it work for a modern audience, but the the meaning is still very much the same, but the context is slightly different. And it's it's just stuff like that that I just really appreciated the nods and the, the heritage of. But then you look at the modern sort of aspect of storytelling and really the subtlety in this play is just fascinating like I noticed that um for Richard II when we first are sort of introduced to him and he's at the height of his powers and he's all glorious I noticed that he was wearing gold nail polish and I thought oh that's an interesting choice (laughs) and it, it just like I noticed it and then it didn't I didn't sort of think about it again until later in the play when he has been usurped and when he is going through a bit of a rough patch and I noticed the gold nail polish had disappeared and I thought wow, they've gone to that level of detail to not just change his costume, not just change his hairstyle, but to the level of detail of his nail polish. And that that to me says that you have a creative team and a designing team that has put every thought and aspect into telling this story in a holistic way, not just about actors' choices and it's not just about, oh, we're presenting Shakespeare on stage. Like yeah. it's it's really good modern theatre technique put into every aspect of this show. It's interesting. I, I didn't notice the the nail polish thing at all. No. But like when when you mentioned it and like, and yeah. I like that's my favorite thing in theater is yeah. is the the tiny detail that one percent of the audience no- notices. Yeah, like when when we've produced theater in the past, like I yeah. I love to focus on that stuff. Like, yes, you're gonna do stuff for ninety nine percent of your audience, but Absolutely. I think if you can get the one percent right, yeah, it does a lot to give your character and your choices some some context and some nuance. Yeah, but going back to what you were saying about sort of comparing and contrasting to modern theatre and the idea of this as being, yes, Shakespeare, but it's mm. modern theatre. I think there's an interesting compare and contrast to be done with the various Globe productions that we've watched and yeah. that we'll continue to watch because these... So this was done in period. It's, it is a what I would call a period piece. Like, yeah. it's in period costume. It's in, it's intended to be interpreted as 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 a work in period yeah it's it's definitely worked intended to be done in period but it certainly has a modern modern aesthetic about it like it's not it's not globe period put it no. that way it's not oh look we're putting on a shakespeare show no it's not that kind of period it is historical accuracy to a degree it's nodding to its roots and its heritage it's not in modern clothes. It's well, in well, period dress. Let me let me yeah, say this. Let me, let me say this then. So, <laughs> like, do you agree with this? So, you agree these are both period pieces. Yep. These both pretty much cleave to the script as written. There's a there's a, a big departure at the end of Richard the Second, which we'll talk about later. But pretty much they both into they both cleave to the intent the interpretation. But yes. they cleave to the intent of the script. Yeah. They both have a lot of respect for the material and its history. Yes. This is way better than anything we've seen at the Globe. It. I can't say it's way better than anything we've seen at the Globe. I mean, as an experience sitting and watching. I don't mean as a from an academic point of view. What is the intent of theatre? Because because no, no. I, th- I think intention is the difference, right? Yeah. I, th- I think 
I think I agree with that. But here's here's the thing, right? Like, because I think of like Merry Wives of Windsor, for example. Yeah. I loved that. I mm. absolutely loved that to bits. Yeah. And I loved this. Um, would I say I loved this more than I loved the Merry Wives of Windsor? No. But 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 that was not the question I asked. The question I asked was was this better? Because you and I both know we we were both before we came up to watch this podcast, we were about to watch. Um, National Treasure, the Nicolas Cage movie. So we clearly understand the difference between what is good and what we like, right? Yes. So this is this is this is my this is my point. Like I think this is just better. It is a higher quality piece of theatre. Okay. Yes. In right? if we're talking about high art, yeah, the Royal Shakespeare Company does produce what you could call higher art. Yes, I, I agree with that. And I feel like... I don't... I just don't agree with the word better being used because I think better comes with a certain set of connotations and understandings that don't apply in this scenario. Okay. Right? Because I just... I think it... I think they're different genres of performance, yeah. if that makes sense. And, and the globe is meant to be a rollicking good time. Yeah. And the Royal Shakespeare Company is meant to be art. And that doesn't make either performance better or worse than the other. No. They're completely different genres. It's like it's like comparing National Treasure to The King's Speech. Right. Right? One is meant to be art mm-hmm. and one is meant to be a rollicking good time. Except, like, I don't have a problem saying that The King's Speech is better than National Treasure. Right. Yeah, but it, like I they're, they're can, no lesser in production value. They're no lesser in casting. I mean, it's probably been a long time since you've seen since you've seen National Treasure. Um, but to, to, <laughs> so, just to just to bring this around to sort of what my broader point was yes. with with this line of questioning, <laughs> that I think the difference is intention, right? Yeah. Because I think what the, what the RSC has done here, yeah, was they have set out to create a theatrical work yeah with respect and that pays homage to the genre that is Shakespearean theater right yeah. whereas what the globe does is set out to create a work of Shakespearean theater and I think that's that's a subtle difference yeah right but I think it is it I think it shows up in sort of what you can do I feel like the globe starts with limitations and goes from there. Yeah. Right? Whereas this starts huge and then has the limitations of genre belted on around it. Yeah. But it's not it's not limited to begin with. Like they they've clearly started with big ideas. Yeah. And I think that's where the real success of this play is, that of this production is. Yeah. That in terms of what they've intended to do and what their intention was. Yeah. Yes, something like Mary Wives of Windsor also they accomplished their intention very well. Yeah. But I think that this production of Richard the Second by the Royal Shakespeare Company has a higher intention. And I yeah. think it gets every bit of the way there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This is going to be a long podcast, folks. It's not going to be a You'll long go, you podcast. You might want to. You might want to. You might want to just give it a pause and go and go and have make yourself a cup of tea and come back because that was very long. And <laughs> it wasn't very long. <laughs> in any case, in any case, let's talk about the cast. Yes, because I mean, as Luke mentioned, uh, I am a little bit of a Doctor Who fan, and my first Doctor was David Tennant. Yeah, um, and that's sort of how I discovered Doctor Who, and I just. I mainly just kept watching because he was just so good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I just really loved his work. And I have I actually knew about this production when it was being performed originally yeah. by David in the UK. And I mourned the fact that I couldn't go and see it in person because I was like, oh, he's doing Richard II. That would be so amazing. Um, but yay for digital theatre. Yes. <laughs> I didn't even realise that they had recorded it. So when I saw on the calendar that we were doing Richard II, this for this week, I was just like, oh, another history, okay. And then you reminded me it was David. I was like, oh, yay! Yeah. Um, so you know, I had fun watching this. Shall I keep gushing about David? Do you want to say something first? Look, I think we should come back to David at the end of this, yeah, um, fair. just because really it is it's his play. Well, I mean, um, he's playing the title ca- character, yeah. so. Um, but I, I want I want to talk about some of the other people first, and then yeah. we'll come back to yeah 
come back to him. There's a lot of really great work. I don't think there's anyone that I thought was terrible. No, this was a great unified cast. Yeah. The Anthony Byrne who plays Thomas Mowbray. Yep. What a great gig. So so he's got this amazing couple couple of scenes right at the top of the play. Yeah. With um, Nigel Lindsay who plays H- Henry Bolingbroke, who's going to be Henry the Fourth in the future. Yeah. And they get these really great scenes where they're in each other's face and they're rageful and they're screaming at each other and they're throwing down their gauntlets and they're. Oh and my they're, gosh, I love that bit so much. And they're, it's they're just in each other's face and they end up they're going to have this duel and then then they're both exiled by Richard II, which is sort yeah. of the inciting incident for the whole story. Yeah. And the inciting incident for Richard's downfall. So Bolingbroke obviously comes back later, mm. but Thomas Mowbray does not. So what a great no. gig. Yeah. He gets to come, he gets to do, you know, uh, I think he's exiled by Act 1, Scene 4. Gets to hang out backstage, bothering the makeup artists, come out for the bows. What Are a... you sure he didn't come back as other casting throughout the play? Look, I'm not entirely sure, but, I, you know, I like to... Yeah, fair. <laughs> I, <laughs> I like to imagine. That's the dream, right? That's... Oh, that's I the... didn't particularly notice him, and I usually notice those things, so... Yeah, I, I, he was he was fantastic at the beginning, and that's the kind of depth we're talking about in this cast, that they can get a guy who's giving that kind of performance, yeah. use him for three scenes, and then discard him, yeah. right? <laughs> Um, we have Oliver Ford Davies and Michael Pennington playing uh, the Duke of York and John of Gaunt, respectively. They both have similar roles in the play. They're both sort of elder statesmen who act as fonts of wisdoms in their particular bit. But I think it's really um, a testament to their work and a testament to the strength of their acting that they were able to separate their archetypes. Like, they have the same archetype, but they give very, very diverse performances. Who do you want to talk about? I'm terrible with names, aren't I? Yeah, that's why I write them down. Yeah, I forget to write them down. Um, I really really enjoyed the lady. Yes. (laughs) Who played the grieving widow of Gloucester. Um, She's sort of towards the beginning of the show, Mm. and she just gave such a wonderful performance that was just full of emotion and angst and grief and sadness. And she didn't mumble a single word. (laughs) And I'm here to preach to the for the cause that you do not have to mumble and you can articulate even when you are feeling all of the emotions so deeply. But the only that like I I absolutely loved her performance. I have to say that as strongly as I can. However I felt that there was a moment in the monologue, well, the the, the scene, it's scene yeah. that I don't know whether it would just was missed entirely or whether it, the energy just didn't shift in the right way the night they filmed this, you know, all of these things. But there was definitely a moment where I felt the energy should have shifted ever so slightly from distraught grieving to allow th- throughout this entire play there are incredible subtleties of humor that mm. are threaded through everything and i think this was one of the opportunities where that was missed because it was amazing to watch her and then all of a sudden it got tedious yeah and you never want that when you're delivering a performance you never want your performance to be wonderful and then grow tedious and i felt that in a it's a weird sort of thing so she starts to talk about that she is getting forgetful and that she is forgetting things and that she must now go and end, she will now go and end her life because her husband has died and she's forgetful and there's no reason for her to go on. So she will now go end her life. And really, I know it sounds strange. and I know it probably sounds morbid, but there's an element in that, that after having this really heavy grieving, emotional monologue, shifting the energy ever so slightly with a slight comedic tint to it gives that statement then so much more power because you don't know if she's joking or not. And that's what makes it dangerous and that's what makes it tantalising rather than a sobbing, grieving widow saying, having sobbed and grieved for the last 10 minutes... 
and then going, now I'm going to go kill myself. It's just like, oh, you know what? I'm kind of glad that you're getting out of my face because I'm kind of tired of you. You're tedious. Instead, it's like, oh, my, did she did she just say she's going to commit suicide? Holy crap. So a couple of things. One, that scene as performed in this play, yeah, heavily cut. Holy Moses. <laughs> so it's, it's longer. <laughs> it's longer as written. And, wow. uh, okay. Um, I, it, you, you're right. It got tedious. I, 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 I got to say, I wonder if, so put on your director hat for a moment. Was yeah. she too good? Because she was amazing. She was, she was amazing. great. And was her being so amazing for so long kind of what, because it's a lot of emotional but this uh, energy to use to watch her perform, right? Yeah, but this is what I'm talking about, right? You can have those emotionally powerful moments and all you need to change. I wouldn't change a single thing about her performance other than that punctuation mark where I felt that the energy should have shifted slightly. Now, that's coming from me as yeah. as a person wearing my director's hat, wearing my, you know, would I make the same choice actor's hat. Um and so that's, they're the different choices that I would have made. Now, that's not to say that I could perform the scene as well as she did. Oh, no. Because she was, like, out of this world amazing in that scene. Yeah. But there was just these moments where I felt I would have chosen a different path to punctuate the scene that, in my opinion, would have given it that little bit of strength at the end that I felt it needed. Yeah. Not I, because her performance lacked, but because of because of the shape of the scene. Yeah, and also we've got to keep in mind that any given night that scene is going to be interpreted very, very differently. Exactly. And, and this like, is what I this is what I said at the beginning with I don't know if this was just how it how it lay on the night they filmed this show. I'd be curious to watch it again then and see if we kind of ha- have the same emotion with that scene then because it's watching it's, in a different mood with some more alcohol applied into us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just just because it's it's sort of it's the same thing. Like every performance is a a collaboration between a performer and an audience. Yeah, it is. And even yeah. a recorded performance, you, what you bring to it as an audience member is, is a huge part yeah, of it, it will obviously. Change it. So. The, the interesting thing is that because it is a recorded live performance and a lot of the energy that the actors get on stage is from the live audience that's there. That's yeah. why live theatre is such a different medium to like film or even recorded theatre because there is a certain magic that occurs in transaction between a cast and a theatre-going audience um, that happens just because you're there and sharing the same energy in the same space. Yeah. So Oliver Ricks played the Duke of Omel. Um, That is a role that's much bigger in this performance than it's usual for um, for Richard II in general. Um, that's for two reasons. He's given a personal relationship with Richard. Mm. And this is based on uh, a lot of historical stuff about Richard, that Richard, was, it, was, it was said that he had a homosexual relationship with a man, and that's what they're kind of leaning to yeah. with this. And um, that that relationship has this has a climax and a desperate kiss that is kind of the punctuation mark for one of Richard's great scenes. Yeah. Um, and then the character of Exton, who is only in a couple of scenes at the end of the play, is removed from this version, and that role is given to the Duke of Omel. That is to kill Richard at the presumed behest of Henry the Fourth. Yeah. In a very Henry the Second and Thomas Beckett, and will no one rid me of this meddling priest kind of way? I really, I really like that. Mm. I really liked that, and we'll 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 talk about that a little bit later as we talk about the um, the moments in the story we liked because. Yeah. That really gets to it. Um, so, Ed, are there any other actors you need to talk about before we get to the tenant? <laughs> um, just overall, like as I said before, I felt like the the cast was really um, uh, unified. They had a really resonant energy that went across them. I didn't feel like there were any weak actors. There were there were a couple of weak moments, but there's no weak actors among the entire cast. I felt. Um, like I said, there's just certain timings and choices that I disagreed with, which is not to say that they're wrong. I just I disagree with them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, overall, the cast was really cohesive and I felt really served to tell a story at large. And we'll be right back after this short ad break. That being said, uh, David Tennant. Uh, I'll tell you what I have written down here. I have um, <laughs> David Tennant is pretty good at acting. I like the bits where he acts and also the bits where he doesn't act as much. You? <laughs> Um, yeah, look, there's, um, 
there's this interesting moment, and this is this is what I love about David Tennant, right? There is such subtlety in the way that he shows character and he reveals character. Because at first he sort of comes out and he's this, you know, glorious man, king and blah. And I was like, oh, okay, cool, no worries. And then as it progresses, I'm like, I think Richard's a bit of a dick. Yeah. I think I think he's a dick. And then about two seconds after I'm like writing that in my book, I was like, oh, oh no, yeah, he's been a real dick. Yeah. And it's like, wow, okay, that's... That's subtlety at its finest. The fact that he just, you, to play a character who's, you know, a bully or a, a meanie or whatever you want to call them, mm. they don't have to be that from the outset. It can be nuanced. It can be subtle. It can come through in layers and waves, right? And it doesn't mean you have to play that one note all of the time. And that's what David's done here. Um, you know, I really enjoyed that that subtle threading of the needle and then the payoff. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so many more things, but you, you go, you go. <laughs> so, yeah, his fall from grace, the way his fall from grace is portrayed is so subtle and it kind of, you don't realize how diverse his choices are from scene to scene. Yeah. I'm reminded of the, the metaphor of the frog in water on the stove. Like if you, if you yeah. toss a frog into boiling water, it'll hop out. But if you just turned it up and let it heat up with the frog and then he'll boil to death, right? Yeah. That's kind of how I feel about his choices. If you go, if you excised the first scene he has in this play and the last scene he has in this play, he will look like he's playing two completely different characters and you don't notice it. Yeah. Because his work is so subtle and regal and devolving and beautiful that he kind of, he moves you along the arc mm-hmm. and you're just sitting there watching him. Yeah. You know, uh, it, he, he made choices that were incredibly ugly. He made choices that were incredibly beautiful. He clearly very intentionally brings this sort of notion of, of, of Christ-like to his yeah. performance, right? It shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that his performance in Richard II is revelatory Mm -hmm. it's aesthetic it's a very skilled and very intentional display of an acting craft yeah and i don't know i think he's a good actor yeah he's he's an excellent actor he's also just an excellent human um he for for if you're looking for another podcast to listen to and you're (laughs) interested david actually does a podcast called david Tennant does a podcast with um and he interviews a great many people um most recently he's been interviewing george takai he's interviewed olivia coleman Whoopi goldberg um and various other names so um he's on to season two so if you're interested check that out they're fascinating interviews um but yeah he's he's just he's just a wonderful wonderful man and uh, I don't think this is the last show we're watching of his. I, I, no. I know for a fact we have one more. I think we might have more than one more. We might. It depends what we make. We have to. We have to make a decision. We have to make some decisions, people, and yeah. it's hard. But there's definitely one that's locked in. Yes. Because I, I bought the DVD, so <laughs> it's we're definitely watching another David Tennant much further down the line. Yes. What was your favorite moment in the play? So Shakespeare uses a, a five act structure. Yeah. And. Um, that's uh, an important thing to to know when you're producing Shakespeare. That it's kind of it, it's very it it's it's very varied to what we consider our normal act structure that we use when we write things today. Yes. And essentially, the the difference is that um, Shakespeare puts his climax in the fourth act of the play, and then there's the denouement. Whatever, however <laughs> you say that word. Denouement. The. Den- oh, we're both wrong. No, the denouement. Denouement. Yeah. Right. It's at the end, and that's kind of the uh, the epilogue um, to telling you what's happened. The resolution. <laughs> so, and whereas in modern times we like twists, we like our twists at the end because we like to, you know, have something to talk about as we're walking out of the theater. That's right. And so, I think the choice to make Richard's killer, the Duke of Armel, is kind of without without taking a real. Um, a, a knife to this work and excising it and making it very clearly a three act play. Mm. They have made a nod to that by giving you a moment at the end that that takes your breath away. Yeah, and then puts a, a pep in your step as you leave the theater or the living room, whatever your circumstance of watching it is. 
And I, I just thought that was such a wonderful choice and yes. such a, like, you know, we talk a lot about cuts and I argue a lot with people on the, on the Shakespeare subreddit <laughs> about whether or not cuts are good. And like, I don't, this was such a cool choice yeah. and surely you can't argue that having this character be a random other person that it doesn't, it doesn't impact the people watching yeah. your audience making this choice is just so much more interesting. So, so why wouldn't you make it? Why wouldn't you make the choice? Right? I actually gasped out loud when it happened. I was like, what? No. And like, it, it was just, it was wonderful because immediately I'm just like, but the, what does that mean for their relationship? Like I just started asking all these questions that just made me so much more interested in the point of the story. And there's there's a scene there's a, there's a series of scenes and like a, a plot line that's in just in Act Five mm. um, that's about um, uh, the Duke of Ormel's parents uh, mm. finding out that he's plotting against Henry the Fourth. Yes, and he's going to be punished for it. And there's you know it's very long. And when I was watching it, I'm like, oh, this has kind of got weak. This has been a weak choice. And then all of a sudden, it's not a weak choice because he they're keeping that character front of mind, and it's like. If, if I if I had fainted in the middle and, and walked away, I would have said, wow, that, that sort of had a weak ending. But the ending is so strong because they weren't afraid to put in the work. Yes. It's, yeah, I, I just, oh, yes. such such a great choice and such a creative way of, of dealing with the end of this play. Yeah. What did you like? What scene you liked? I mean, I, that was definitely, that was definitely one of my favorite moments. Um, but uh, I say, I'll, I'll say it again. Uh, you mentioned the gauntlet throwing. Yes. Um, I, I've got here written the 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 presentation of the gauge throwing because in the in the actual play text they they referred to as gauges rather than gauntlets. Yes. Um, but this is basically the glove that the knights wear, and and this is part of the subtle humor that I'm talking about in this play. It is so funny, um, without being, it's hilarious without being rolling on the floor laughing, right? Um, because it's these these grown men having a very, very serious argument and continually grabbing gloves off each other and throwing them on the ground and picking them up and throwing them on the ground again and somebody else picks it up and throws it on the ground again and it's it's just this ongoing it's kind of this this beautiful uh dichotomy is dichotomy the right word of of the serious with the silliness. It's kind of like they're demonstrating, even though it's a very serious scene and these men are having a very serious fight, the way that they portray portray it through the gauge throwing explains to the audience that the argument that they're having, although very serious, is over something very silly. It's a a release valve for the tension in the scene, right? They build up tension, but they don't let it get too crazy. They're just kind of letting it off a little bit at the time. And so as an audience member, you're kind of riding the wave of tension in the scene. Yeah, it's right at the beginning of the play, so you don't want to get it too heavy too quickly because there's there's so much heavy to come. And, of course, we don't know that as an audience right at the start of the play, but... Again, it it has those those layers of nuance and those layers of of staggering over the course of the entire production. And they've sat down and they've thought about it. And I just yeah, I really liked that. Um, I also want to give a nod and a shout out to the vocalists and the musicians who mm. played live um, throughout the play. They were they were wonderful. They were just their performance was weaved in so um, seamlessly throughout the show. Um, and help to tell the story, not just provide background music, but actually help to tell the story and move the story forward. And I just really appreciated their their talents in that. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the time when we watch Shakespearean, um, uh, either live or in this uh, particular project we're doing, when we watch Shakespearean shows, um, it seems to be a really good uh launching pad for musicians there's it like yeah. there's, there's a lot of great composers working in this and sometimes they're taking period work and sometimes there's original exactly. uh, original works for it but it, it seems to really work like mm. it, it's just it's it's music it's, is so important to the storytelling of Shakespeare like we don't we don't acknowledge that enough I don't think in a modern context um, you know like Shakespeare's not a musical but music is so important to storytelling and I think that we I think that we forget that like you know watch watch your favorite movie on mute or whatever and you'll realize how much the sound design and how much the music the background music in a film 
that's not a musical actually adds to build the tension. So just to wrap up this section, um, I'm gonna, so I'm going to talk about my favourite thing in this play and probably my favourite thing in almost all Shakespeare. Um, and that might change because there's a lot of Shakespeare I haven't seen. By the end of this project, I'll have seen it all, so <laughs> we'll see that. But um, Richard II has a long monologue, a long monologue, <laughs> huge scene. Um, upon the return, his return from Ireland in Act 2, Scene 3. And it's one of the great Shakespearean monologues. It's a fascinating you know, performance. Let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings is... Uh, that's a, a line I would have tattooed on on my on my belly. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, but you know that's it's 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 wonderful. It's it's as a as a work, it's hollow, it's full of beautiful fear. Um, I feel like it's a scene that a bad actor could take your breath away with, mm. right? And a good actor can make you weep. And this is not merely a good actor we have doing this. Yes. Not to continue belabor the point about David Tennant being amazing. <laughs> but it's, it's if you do one thing about this play, just seek out that monologue and seek out his performance of it. Mm. I've been frantically trying to impress upon everyone who I've spoken to about acting recently. This is this brand new metaphor i have for describing acting performances <laughs> it's actually a good metaphor i hate to acknowledge it but it's actually a good metaphor right so so i, I uh, what i talk about is that there are acting performances that are guitar solos and there are acting performances that are drum solos right and by that i mean a great drum solo is about tension right it's about um building up your expectations and defying expectations and building tension and bringing the audience along with you and bringing it to a ride right Whereas a great guitar solo is about getting knocked back into your seat and just watching an amazing piece of work happen. You know, mm. a colossus bestride the stage doing that work. The gauge throwing scene we were talking about before, mm -hmm. that's a drum solo. Yeah. It's all about tension and it's all about that release. This scene is a guitar solo and it's wonderful. Yeah. It's just watching a man do his best work yeah. with the best material possible yeah. right and it's such an important scene in the play mm. and it just makes the whole thing for me yeah I, I love that yeah i yeah i loved i love that particular passage it's just yeah you're right it's just a, a you can just sit there and let it wash over you and just be wonderful yeah all right nitpicks hot takes go <laughs> look i I do have some, but they're very, very small. Like, I, I, I really did enjoy this show. I've, it has an amazing cast, great direction, wonderful sonography. It caught me and it grabbed me and I enjoyed it much more than I expected to. So I don't, I got very, very little, tiny, tiny little nitpicks. Um, th there was a Herald character and he just seemed to have one volume. Like, I get that Heralds are supposed to be loud because they're announcing stuff, but even when he seemed to have just off to the side dialogue with another actor, he just maintained that same volume as if yeah. he was heralding everything he said, which it wasn't bothersome. It happened for like two minutes in the whole show, but it was just like a, hmm, that was an interesting choice. Um, there was this moment where, so the two guys that were throwing down the gauges at the beginning wanted to have a fight. And so they brought out these massive swords. Like, I know... I know, like, you know more about sword history than I do. And I know that swords were big. Yes. But these just seemed excessively large. They were like Zweihander, like big double-handed swords. Yeah, they were like almost bigger than the men that they were holding them. And they couldn't wield them and they were big and, and cumbersome. And they hit the the swords together for maybe three strokes. It went clang, clang, clang. And then Richard was like none, I will have none of this. And so they stopped fighting. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that poor prop person had to go source these two bloody large swords. And they hit, they used them for like three hits and then we don't see them again for the rest of the show and they have normal side swords for the rest. I just, why? Why? I just, I would have rather had seen some actual decent stage combat than the comedy of giant swords. It was very, uh, it was very uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It was very much swords, that. Yeah. I'm just, I was like, I don't know if the tone is right. 
for for this. But as I said, it's a very small thing. It's a very very tiny, and it is a nitpick. Um, my last one is, and I'm not sure if this is actually a Will Shakespeare. What what were you thinking, or whether it's how they've reworked the script? I don't know which. Um, because as you all know, if you listen to our podcast on a regular basis, I don't read the script. Um, <laughs> but I got confused. It seemed it seemed to me that York, the Duke of York, who is Henry the Fourth, right? Is that who the Duke of York is? No, no, the no. Duke of York is not Henry the Fourth. The okay. Duke of York is a supporter of Henry. Right. That that's he, okay, he supported, that's where but he he yeah. he turned he he turned coded and he supported Henry. Henry the Fourth. That's where I got the Henry War, part. Yeah. But anyway. The Duke of York seemed to at one point be trying to kill his own son. Right. And I just, I I wasn't really clear on why. Well, I and mean. And that bothered me. Yeah, okay. It, it's the Civil War thing, right? It's, it's you know, fathers turning against their sons and brothers turning against brothers. And, oh, And, like, right. to the point, like, they that happens. Yeah. And you're kind of like, oh, Okay, so this is what's happening. Clearly, York has decided that he's throwing his his lot in wholeheartedly with Henry the Fourth, oh. and so he's he's decided that he's not going to have his son. Like he's he's going to punish his son for this thing. Yeah. Okay. Then that's kind of paid off in this production, at least by the son killing his lover, yeah. Richard the Second. So the, actually, yeah. In hindsight, that yeah, I prob- I didn't connect that dot. But the, I mean, the fact that you yeah. didn't connect that dot is a problem. Like, yeah, that's it's a problem that I didn't connect that dot, but. I mean, again, I'm not putting that completely wholly and solely in stock on their fault. Like, there are times where I just don't get stuff, and that's fine. Like, yeah, you can't you can't get everything. Yeah. I'm an intelligent woman, but you know, we can't all understand everything. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but that's it for me. I, other than that, a wonderful show. Kudos to all of them. Yeah. So I, I'm not doing nitpicks and hot takes. Oh. Um, I am. I am. Make me sound like a bad guy. Yeah. I, I. I am. I am vetoing that this week. I'm just going to talk about little things that I loved. Like we've talked about big things we loved. I'm going to talk about little tiny things because uh, that's <laughs> my favorite. Right. Yeah. Like I, I love the way that David Tennant says Bolingbroke <laughs> many different ways. Yeah. Just hatefully and sad and just like. It, it it'd be it'd be a wonderful sort of acting analysis exercise just to take every time he says that word out mm-hmm. and just look at the different ways he's using it. Um, so many different ways of emoting it. Uh, I I love. There's a scene uh, later in the play after he, it's while he's being deposed, where um, he's given a mirror, and they sh- they show you that it is a mirror by um, shining a stage light on it. Yeah. And it comes off the mirror directly onto Tennant's face, and what a what a fantastic thing! Right. We could do like oh, it, you could do that in any theater, and it would look amazing. Anytime you use a mirror, yeah, that's what we should be doing, yeah. <laughs> right? And then he he takes the mirror and then he shines. That would have been. <laughs> yeah, well, I know, but I think it's doable. It's oh, oh, of course it's doable. It's, it, they did it. It's but a, it's I'm just, just it's a skill thing for your actor. It's just about practice, right? And then yeah. he shines it into Henry's face. Yeah. Later in the scene. It's a wonderful dramatic moment. Like yeah. it's it's a it's a clever idea well used. I loved um how quick some of the stage transitions were. Mm. Um there's a a scene in in the second act where we have uh so Bolingbroke is plotting and his scene ends and he leaves the stage and we have Richard coming onto stage before Henry is all the way off the stage. The transitions kind of overlap, right? Yeah. And I bet you that there are a lot of people who would watch that and be like, well, that was sloppy. That was terrible. And to those people, I say, get over yourself. It's it's, (laughs) my immersion is not broken one iota by that. And it was brisk and it kept the energy going. And these are the people, these imaginary straw men that I'm setting up railing against who would have hated the scene. (laughs) Like these are the people who say that we need to do, everyone needs an individual bow at the end of shows. No, they don't. No, they it's, don't. It's just, it, like, just let it happen. And, yep. yeah, I, I just, I really, I really like that. I love the snot dripping from the, the widow duchess of Gloucester's nose. Oh, yeah. And the, the rageful drool from the mouth of the Duke of York when he discovered his, his son, the Duke of yeah. Vermeule, is playing against the king. Yeah. They're not I, afraid to be ugly. No. And that is, that is such a beautiful quality that we don't see enough in actors is the ability to be comfortable 
in appearing ugly, for want of a better word, on stage, in character. And, it, you know, it's telling that it's the older actors that did it in this. Yeah. Right. But that being said, Tennant was there were scenes in in this where, where oh, Tennant yeah. was was ugly as well, where and yeah. um, then very specific choices made. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a story I read uh, just the other day, um, and this is only tangentially related to Shakespeare or anything. It's it's sort of related to the idea of ugly actors. So apparently, when they were doing the parts of the Caribbean game on the DS, yeah, um, the main actors, yeah, had veto power over their depiction in the game. <gasps> And Orlando Bloom yeah. had a problem with the way his pecs looked. What? And, like, a, a Nintendo DS is capable of, like, displaying 2,000 polygons or something, and everything looks terrible on the DS. Yeah. And apparently he kept sending it back and back and back and back and kept having these problems, and they kept adjusting the texturing and stuff like that. And you know what? Get over yourself, Orlando Bloom. Yeah. I, I understand it was at a point in his career where he really needed to carefully shepherd his image, but still. You know, it's it's okay. It's okay to be ugly sometimes. <laughs> that's that's not the kind of ugly I was talking about. But yes, Orlando Bloom, get over yourself for that moment. Um, <laughs> okay, quotes, quotes. Yes, I just have um, one really um, that I wrote down. Anyway, um, it was it. This was said by the Duke of York, um, and it was very funny. <laughs> Because of the way he delivered. The line itself is not funny, mm. but the way he delivered it was hilarious. It's basically another way to stay, stop you moaning. Yeah. Um, comfort's in heaven and we are on earth. Yeah. Now, I can't, there's, there's no way I can possibly deliver it for you that will be as funny as it was in the moment that he delivered it in the context of the scene. But I just, I really loved, I, I love the language of that in and of itself. Comfort. Comfort is in heaven and we are here on the earth, as in you are never going to be comforted. So stop your, stop your moaning and get on with the job. Yeah. So, yeah, I just really liked it. Um, I've already spoken about let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings. Yeah. It's very close to the, the grief in my own life. And I, I love that, that whole scene and I love that line. Like that line specifically is, oh. Yeah. Um, it's also a great play. The little phrases in the middle of long, beautiful monologues. Yeah, um, makes me wish more Shakespeare was written entirely in verse. Right, like this is <laughs> one. I think this is one of two. I think we're already done with them that oh. are written entirely in verse. Like I'm probably right. I did about notice that. it was rhymy. <laughs> yeah. Um. They so he talks about like the the phrases like the hollow crown and this sceptered isle. Um. Uh, rem- the remembrance of a weeping queen. Yeah, there's so much great stuff in that. So I, like, I have I have I've written down a whole bunch of them in my Google Keep, and I will be <laughs> stealing them for titles of things. Like, it's it's so great. And there's also a wonderful line in this: that England that was wont to conquer others hath made a shameful conquest of itself, which is a line that William Shakespeare wrote about Brexit. <laughs> moving right along. <laughs> Uh, would you would you watch would you watch this play again? Yeah, I definitely will watch it again. I think you know this is the kind of play that we would probably have a few um, subsequent nerdy friends over who would appreciate this and have a glass of wine and sit down and watch together and and just enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, uh, so we watched it on digital theater. Yeah, um, paid seven pounds to rent it. Yeah, and I, at frankly extortionate cost, have purchased the Blu-ray <gasps> now. So we'll definitely be doing that, and Yay! you know that that tells you something about how much how much we liked. Yeah, we only buy the DVD if if we really liked it, or, or if we have to, I suppose. Yeah, or if we have to, but like yeah. you know, most of them we've been able to source online somewhere for some kind of rental fee. But yeah, if if we really like it, we buy the DVD. Uh, how many spears? Four spears for me. It's definitely in the top five of everything we've watched so far. Okay. Uh yeah, I have two numbers written down. Oh. Yeah. And scandalous. It's just kind of You agonize over this so much. I do, I do, which is because Mine is it, so arbitrary. <laughs> well it is it is arbitrary, <laughs> but it says something about you as a person, the way you rate things, right? Yeah. Um it's look. I I loved everything about this play. I would watch it again uh, as we sort of got ready to record this podcast because we're a few days out of yeah. when we watched it now. I was like, oh, maybe I should just watch it again. And that's not something I ever think. I'm not no, a person who regularly goes back not. and rewatches stuff. Like, <laughs> So uh, that probably says a lot of things. Five Spears. 
Oh, it's yeah. a big one. It's a it's big, a big one. one. I, I, I like it. Like that's, you know, it I is think what it's good. it is. Yeah. And that'll be, so that'll be number one until I rate something six beers, which can totally happen. Which can totally happen. And now, a sonnet that is not Sonnet 18. Sonnet 105. Let not my love be called idolatry, nor my beloved as an idol show, since all alike my songs and praises be to one, of one, still such and ever so. Kind is my love today, tomorrow kind, still constant in a wondrous excellence, Therefore my verse to constancy confined, one thing expressing, leaves out difference. Fair, kind and true is all my argument. Fair, kind and true, varying to other words. And in this change is my invention spent. Three themes in one, which wondrous scope affords. Fair, kind and true have often lived alone. Which three, till now, never kept seat in one? You've been listening to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters. You can follow us on the socials using HSAUL Podcast, where we will also make our show notes available. Feel free to send us any questions there or send us an email at hsaulpodcast at gmail.com. You can subscribe to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters on iTunes, Spotify or anywhere good podcasts are available. Next time we'll be watching the 2014 RSC performance of Two Gentlemen of Verona. This podcast is produced in partnership with That's Not Canon Productions and the music is by me with editing by both Tammy and myself. Thanks to William Shakespeare, Zane, Daryl, Scott, Janet, Bernadette, David, Emily, Kate, Peter and Jason for your help and mentorship. See you next time. A sonnet that is not sonnet 18. (coughs) Say the number. Yes. (laughs) I know, I forgot. I'm going to wait for that card to go past. I don't think that's idambic pentameter. It's probably not. It says, The humour of this sonnet is that while defending himself against the charge of idolatry, the speaker echoes language traditionally used by Christians to describe God. Uh, also, was mm-hmm. def- was actually iambic penta- pentameter. I'm going to wait for the card to go past. This, yeah. Anyway, continue. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.